The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry, built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle, from the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback. There's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. And right now, your local Toyota dealer has more vehicles in stock and is making delivery on new vehicles almost every day. So visit your local Toyota dealer. And check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Offers end April 1st. Toyota, let's go places. If you love Push Black's Black History Year, you'll love our newest podcast called Two Minute Black History. In only two minutes, you'll hear little-known stories about our people and reclaim the knowledge we need to take action and advance our community. To move towards the future, you've got to look to the past. Learn the history you didn't get in school. Tune in to Two Minute Black History every Tuesday through Friday, right on the Black History Year feed and wherever you listen to podcasts. asked to come here but they brought us and they bought us anyway we didn't want to work for them but they beat us into service and after we fought off their oppression and won our hard earned freedom they wouldn't share a slice of their precious apple pie the right to earn a living wage under just and safe work conditions should be as inalienable a right as a freedom of speech. But white supremacy sought to keep black workers from the best jobs, the strongest industries, and their sacred labor unions. I'm Jay from Push Black, and you're listening to Black History Year. America's history of black labor is rooted in injustice. Our struggle to be heard in the workforce dates pretty far back. Let's look at 1869 when the Colored National Labor Union was formed, uniting black folks across the country in response to the exclusion of black workers at every other union in the country practice. The Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, established in 1925, was one of the first black-led labor organizations. It had such a strong presence in the railroad industry that it's often credited as creating the black middle class. No longer standing on the wrong side of union hall doors, black workers today occupy more seats at the labor union table than any other race or ethnicity in America. What does that mean in our continuing fight for liberation? Here to help us explore the answer is an outspoken organizer who's one of the folks leading the way. Bianca Cunningham is the campaign director at the Action Center on Race and the Economy, a nonprofit that directly takes on the financial institutions and anti-democratic actors. 
that are responsible for pillaging black communities, poor families, subverting voting rights, and destroying our environment. She's also the co-founder of the Afro-Socialists and Socialists of Color Caucus of the Democratic Socialists of America. Bianca began her journey in 2014 when she organized her Verizon co-workers in Brooklyn to join the Communication Workers of America Union. This was a first for retail workers at the company. She'll share that story and more, including her views on the state of current labor conditions. First up, a crash course on the triumphs of unionized black workers. Despite a troubling history with racist exclusion, Today, Black workers are currently the most represented racial group in U.S. labor unions. And as union membership grows, they're winning powerful concessions from often hostile corporations. Labor unions fight against some of the biggest hardships U.S. workers face, such as wage theft and dangerous working conditions. Recently, Amazon, Starbucks, and Apple workers are organizing to get union membership for their workforces. Some of these moves are historical firsts for corporations that, historically, have not granted workers the rights they deserve. Black workers have actually been at the forefront of these worker activism triumphs for quite some time. For generations, white workers excluded black workers from joining labor unions. They were able to force black workers into very specific industries and leave the desirable jobs to their own people. The American League of Colored Laborers, most likely the first black union to form in the United States, was led by abolitionist Frederick Douglass. Later, the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, led by A. Philip Randolph, was crucial in fighting for black workers' rights and contributed to President Roosevelt's historic labor rights legislation in 1938. All workers deserve a living wage and to be treated with respect. The growth in black labor union organizing is an inspiring effort to move our country in a more just direction. Bianca, what does Black liberation look like to you? Oh, Black liberation looks like to me the ability to name ourselves, feel what we feel, achieve prosperity, see our families uh, grow and prosper. It's our ability to exist on our own freely in whatever way and form that takes for each and every one of us. Have you always held that perspective? Can you trace sort of how that developed? Yeah, so for me, so much of my lived experience is based on these societal conditions, right, that are put on us, the condition that we need to work. My own struggles of trying to unionize my workplace so that I can have a voice on the job and just go to go to work and do what I'm supposed to do without people harassing me. And so, yeah, I, I would say that my definition of Black liberation has come out of my lived experience and feeling like I'm always having to fit myself in a box or in a space that somebody else has already created and deemed was for me, or maybe force myself into a space that wasn't made for me is a better way to say it. Can you describe for me how you are working towards that vision of liberation through the work that you do? I'm a union organizer by trade. 
I didn't go to school for that, um, like many people do. I didn't even know what a union organizer was before. You know, I experienced um, complications or, you know, issues at my own workplace. I was working for uh, Verizon Wireless Retail Store in Brooklyn and, you know, had all these dreams coming out of college about, you know, what my degree would bring me and what it would mean to be in, in corporate America. Ended up in corporate America and decided I didn't want to do that and so ended up in the store. And some of the dynamics that I saw happening in the store, being sexually harassed by male management, I worked off of commission and I felt like so much of my ability to make ends meet was hindered by patriarchy and capitalism and all these other like outside forces. You know, I unionized my workplace. I got fired for that unionization. And then um, I got introduced to, you know, the ideology of socialism. You know, and there's all kinds of things within that story. I had to go on strike. And so that, you know, that was school for me to try to learn, like, you know, what does it look like when you're trying to, um, you know, fight for better, what corporate forces come against you. Right now, I find myself uh, in the South, primarily organizing, even though I still do reside in Brooklyn. And what we're trying to help them do is, well, number one, get resources there because they're incredibly underfunded and underinvested in, but also help them create like infrastructure of organizing to figure out what is it that they want to see for their own communities and and help them provide a framework for them and help them um, knit those pieces together, you know, so that they can achieve their own self-determination in the South. That's what I do day to day for liberation. And, and, And then I also do my own work of unlearning my internal patriarchy, my internal white supremacy, my internal, um, all the isms, right. That, Growing up in a Church of God in Christ household, uh, you know, has definitely instilled into me and things that I need to unlearn. The connection between you and your therapist matters. That's why Alma focuses on helping you find the right someone to talk to, not just anyone. When you browse their online directory, you can filter your search by what you want to focus on, like anxiety, relationships, or big life transitions. You can also specify preferences around gender, race, faith, and more to help you find someone who's more likely to understand where you're coming from. Alma also makes it easy for therapists to navigate insurance. That's why 95% of providers in their directory accept insurance for sessions, so you can find care that's affordable too. You want to talk to someone, but not just anyone. Alma is there to help you find the right fit. Visit helloalma.com slash not just anyone to schedule a free consultation today. That's helloalma.com slash not just anyone. I'd like to take a step back to the story of you organizing at Verizon Wireless. What was the, the tipping point for you? Okay, now I have to do something. That's a great question. So um, when I had when I transferred to the retail store, I had been working in the call center previously, and so this was a transfer. And immediately, I understood what uh, management discretion meant because I felt like I was working in one company. There should be one set of rules, and they should be applicable to you know whatever department. And what I really found was that the store that I was in was a fiefdom. It was completely disconnected from any level of accountability as far as um, rules, you know, our ability to take breaks, um, our ability to, to see our schedules in advance, et cetera. Um, and so kind of this had been building from the moment I got into the retail store realizing, oh, wait a minute, you know, this is not right. What's different, et cetera. But that's like normal. Like we all have, uh, you know, issues around our jobs and, you know, don't have difficult bosses, et cetera. 
I think for me, really, the tipping point was a couple years into working into the in the retail store when we had had a particularly abusive manager who was really rigid um, in the things that she asked us to do, really rigid in our scheduling and really just making everybody's life a living hell. We used to collectively call HR together because we thought there was no way the company can know that she's operating in this way, right? We were taking collective action even back then before we even understood what collective action was. No response from HR. Eventually, because so many so many people did call, they did decide to transfer her out. And so we were all relieved because we felt like we had been dealing with this terrible manager for so long. And this is, now we're going to get somebody new. And in comes, you know, this really young Black guy who we all thought was going to be super cool and who ended up, you know, sexually assaulting and harassing almost half of the women in the store. You know, I endured things like him walking behind me, you know, on the stairs or bending over behind me and making comments about what I was wearing. He used to call me Boofang. That was his public uh, <laughs> uh, nickname of me. And so we kind of went through this. And I, and I would say that it was like really complicated for us because like we wanted to support him as like a young black manager, right? Uh, understanding that like we like to see our own people like succeed. It was a good job, good paying job. He had a family and a wife and everything. But one of the women did end up, he ended up locking her into a storage closet in the inventory closet to inquire about who was, who was sending her flowers. Um, and so she decided to blow the whistle without telling any of us. And I think it was interesting to see how it played out because, you know, half of us wanted to come to her and affirm her experience and say, yes, you know, we have probably been overlooking or feeling uncomfortable in certain ways, but feeling because of the power dynamic of him being our manager, um, we couldn't really say anything. She decided to say something. And I think the other half of the women were really angry and saying, like, why would you want to take down this black man? Right. Like, why do you want to destroy his character? HR did the investigation. By that time, I was completely like mentally exhausted and drained just from having like one after the other bad manager who, you know, and spending most of my time at work and, and, and really feeling like really, really like a shell of myself. And so I took some time off through the FMLA process. And um, when I came back, that manager was fired, but they also let me know that I was going to be assigned to a different store in Brooklyn. And when I went to that store, another black manager, um, you know, I, most of my coworkers are, are, are black and um, at the time and, and, you know, wanted to get along, wanted to start fresh, et cetera. And then I, when it came time, I was probably back for about two months and it came time to do our performance reviews for the year so that we can review what our raises were going to be, et cetera. And he basically pulled me into the office and said, you haven't even been here for the last couple of months. I haven't worked with you. I look out for my favorites and the people who look out for me. And so I'm going to give you the bare minimum. I think he gave me a 1% raise when really the norm is like three to 4% with that explanation. And I remember that he left his computer, um, like he was using the computer on the floor, on the sales floor and left it unlocked. And I went behind him and just happened to see how he allocated the raises. Some of his favorites getting six and 7% raises while people like me getting 1%. And I thought about this and I was like, listen, you've had three iterations of bad managers at this point. If you're not ready to unionize right now, like, you know, and I was just like, this is not even a personal thing anymore. This is just like, we have to have a structural response to this type of behavior, whether it's favoritism, whether it's sexual harassment, whether it's bullying, et cetera. And so that was what really made me pull um, the trigger in wanting to reach out to a union to figure out what our options were. So at this point, how had you been politicized to be thinking along the lines of unionizing? I have to say that like, I did not grow up in a union household. I grew up in an Air Force household. Um, 
my grandparents were in the union. And so I, I, I vaguely remember, you know, my grandfather in the factory in Virginia going on strike when I was a kid, but not really. But one of the things that so I wasn't super politicized and I didn't even really know. Like, I remember calling through my family members to say, I'm, and I'm a very spiritual person. I'm praying about it. I'm fasting on the idea of reaching out to the union. And I remember my family telling me, you know, what their experiences had been with the union. But the thing that was really, the picture that was really clear in my mind was that, you know, Brooklyn uh, is a blue collar town. So it's, it's often that you see people, especially old Brooklyn, not this new gentrified Brooklyn, but the old Brooklyn, you know, you see people with their union jackets on. We'd see people come in and we'd recognize, wow, we're working for the same company. Even the people that work for the, like the landline side who like climb the poles and do like that kind of old school and maintain the network, et cetera. Like we realize that like these people, we work for the same company. We feel like we're bringing in as a cell phone service, right? As a cell phone, like it's a new thing, bringing up in a bulk of revenue for this company. Yet these other people are able to buy houses in Brooklyn, put their kids through school, seem like they're really, you know, when you talk to them, they're really happy about their benefits. You see the discount they get with us. What, what What is the difference between us and them if we have the same board of directors? And so I really didn't have a lot of experience except for seeing you know, peop, working people around Brooklyn who had city jobs, union jobs, et cetera, you know, really thriving and wondering why me and my coworkers couldn't afford to move, you know, out of our parents' house or live alone or, you know, really survive in this economy by ourselves. And so that is like what was on the top of my mind. We need what they have because what they have seems to be like working really well for them. What happens next? You start this process and what happens next? We start this process and immediately the company takes us to court to um, contest it. And I want to talk about this because unionization is like popular right now when people are, there's like more new organizing happening in the country than, you know, in a long time. And so I think this is really important for people to know. Um, so what happens is that they take you to court and they challenge to say like your unit or the people who could be included into the, to the unit. And they say, we could go to trial knowing that trial is going to take months to have. And then you have to actually go through the trial and have the judge decide about the unit. And so what we do, what they do is say, well, we can go to trial or they pick a date that's maybe like three months out. Right. And this is before Obama made like the three week turnaround rule for um, organizing. The three week turnaround rule means that you have to have an election within three weeks of the workers um, filing for an election. Um, that was before then. So they were able to get three months out of us. So they want that time for a reason because that's the time that they're going to run their anti-union campaign, try to scare people and intimidate people so that what, you know, when you go to the National Labor Relations Board, you have to have like a certain percentage of uh, the employees on cards and a signature to sign cards to say that they want a union and they want, a, and then that's what triggers the election. What the company is trying to do in that three months is peel people off until the numbers are in their favor. So, um, we, we, pick a, we pick an election day and the company starts their anti-union campaign. Anti-union campaign includes a lot of things. Um, it includes taking employees away from everyone else into a basement to try to talk to them about, you know, whether or not they want to keep their job. You know, they can't really, you know, they do break the law. They're trying not to break the law in a lot of cases. And so they're beating around the bush, trying to intimidate you to say, like, if you support the union, you can't be on our side, or you may lose your job, or the union won't really win anything for you. They'll just take you out on strike and, and use you as a tool. 
Um, it could also, it also included things like the CEO of the company and the CFO of the company coming to do store visits between all of us to say like, is everything okay? I'm just here to listen. You know, I'm just here, you know, because I'm hearing you guys have some concerns. Um, I think that we can solve this as a family. Um, it includes what we call captive audience meetings where all the employees are brought into one room and the manager will do something called like union education where they'll try to like show you videos to intimidate you from wanting to join the union and say the union is violent, the union is full of thugs, it's the losing side, etc. But then they also went as far as to target, you know, some of the people who were like pursuing citizenship in the United States and here on work visa to say like, um, it would be a shame if you didn't get your citizenship because you didn't have a job because you wanted to support this union. Pulled one woman to the side and said, aren't you in a custody fight? This is a huge distraction from that. It would be a shame if you lost custody of your child because you were trying to be active into this, in this political you know, union. Like, forget it. So they do that for three months. We stand strong um, because of, you know, exercising solidarity, exercising clear channels of communication, warning one another, they're on your way to you. This is what they said to us. This is what we said, you know, just being really transparent with one another. We end up winning three months later, decisively. And then you go into a process um, where your coworkers and you decide who do you want to send to the table, the negotiations table, the bargaining table, to represent your interests. Um, it will be a number of your coworkers, as well as some representatives from the union itself, a lawyer, etc. We go into that process thinking everything that we saw on TV is true. Where you sit across the table, you put a proposal, they put a counter proposal, and then the negotiations happen. What actually happens is that they hire one of the worst uh, union busters in the country from Hertz, which was on the ten worst places to work back then, and. <laughs> And he sits across the table from us, and we put forward proposals that include dress code, the ability to have bulletin boards, uh, the ability, things around scheduling, you know, any number of issues based on what our coworkers are saying is mo most important to them. And they actually just say, we're not interested in this proposal and push it back to us. So we did this for a year with no counters, okay? A year, going in every single day, going to 140 West Street, meeting with the company for them to say, we're not interested with no counter proposals. We actually at one point put a proposal across the table for a penny raise, which they also said they weren't interested in. That was my crash course. And I always thought these kinds of things were about money. The, the company wants to save money or, you know, they're trying to protect the coin and we're trying to get the coin. It's not about money. It's about power and the discretion to change things as they see fit. And so about a year in, we tried to prove that they're not bargaining in good faith, but it's very hard to prove that at the labor relations board. And so the union comes to us and says, I think you're going to have to go on strike for your first contract, which is at that time unheard of. Now you see that more, but back then, not really a thing. This was about a year into it. You were still, y'all were still going to work though, but also negotiating. Going okay. to work. Then okay. A couple, going to work like normal. It's still tense, right? Because there's this negotiations yeah. going on, but it's me and two coworkers that are in negotiations. And then we're just disseminating the information back to all of our, you know, hundred plus coworkers who, um, you know, are waiting to see when can we get a deal. 
Celebrate and save at Ashley's anniversary sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details. On the strike part, um, and I want to ask because I know many people in our audience might be thinking, damn, if I go on strike, I'm going to, you know, there might be some kind of serious repercussion. Might not be able to pay my bills or whatever, whatever. So um, what concerns did you face personally or from your um, your coworkers when y'all were deciding to go on strike? I think that the, so the first obstacle that we had was that that was something that was a talking point that the company used at first to say the union's just going to take you on strike. And the union organizer's response was, that's silly. Nobody goes on a strike for a first contract, not being able to foresee how hard the fight would be. And so when we dispelled that myth from the on, like in the beginning to say, like, we're not going to go on strike, right? That's crazy. A year later, when they come back and say, eh, I think you're going to have to go on strike. It's like, ooh, you know, like that's not going to go over too well. Um, and so I remember, you know, we have something called a strike authorization vote. Everybody comes for a meeting. We met on a Sunday night or something where nobody was working. And, you know, they talk about the reasons that we want to go on strike. The union that we were striking with, Communication Workers of America, is, a, is what we would call like a militant union that has a history of striking. And so they have something called a strike fund. When, when you pay dues into the union, they put those dues to the side and put them in a fund. So, so if uh, the workers do have to go on strike, they can allocate those funds on a weekly basis. So for instance, your first week of striking, I think you get $100 and so on and so forth. Second week, two, third week, three, fourth week, four. And in the meantime, they're giving out grocery cards and you know trying to do everything to figure out how to also put extra funds towards the things that you need. Um, and then once you're on strike for a little bit, um, you start to unemployment trigger. So I will say that one of the, and this is why I don't believe that uh, insurance should be tied to employment. Uh, one of the, the, the points of leverage that they had over me and my coworkers was our health insurance. And so a month into our strike, they turned our benefits off. And that became a huge issue because we had people with high-risk pregnancy, et cetera, that needed to see specialists. Um, and the COBRA plan that, that triggers for the state just wasn't the same coverage, level of coverage that the employer was giving. And so that actually caused a lot of people to go back and, and get come off the strike line and go back into the store. In the meantime, they're running the store with managers who they've flown in from different parts of the country because we're outside. Wow. So this like a... Low-key form of violence p- pulling the healthcare when folks have these issues that they're dealing with. Absolutely. Wow. Okay. So 49 days comes, then what happens? 49 days comes and we're exhausted. It's, I want to say to people that it's harder. It, it sounds like, oh, those workers just want to go on strike because they don't want to work or they're lazy. When in reality, striking is way harder than going to work. And striking is mm. like protecting the door, shouting out into the abyss, like talking to people about why they shouldn't cross your picket line, um, stressing about money in the background. Like it is, it is exhausting physically and mentally. Um, but 49 days comes and they say we have an agreement. And so at that point they didn't call. And I want to say this too, because it was wrong what they did. And all the unions are not like this, but this did happen. 
they actually did a meeting in DC and they didn't invite us. And so when they were announcing that there was a agreement, my coworkers are calling me and I have no idea what the agreement because we didn't, we hadn't had any, any um, tentative agreements on the table and nobody involved us into the process. What they did, what they did do for us, um, what they did negotiate for us was ended up being a grievance procedure, which means that you have the right to challenge discipline or um, decisions that the management makes um, and the ability to see an arbitrator in, in those challenges. And people were really disappointed, but that's kind of like the backbone of what unions are, due process and a grievance procedure. Um, it means that they can't fire you and that you're not an at-will employee anymore, that you have a process that they have to you know, go through. So then what happens is they present these agreements to me and my coworkers, and we have a meeting and people can vote yes or no. People had a lot of reservations about saying yes to that agreement. They felt like the level of fight that we had put up and the things that we had sacrificed and been through didn't equal to what they saw that we want on the paper. And so the expectations mm. were sky high because everybody had felt like we put it all out on the line. Um, and then there was also people that were like, listen, I've been in this process, you know, like me, I've been in this process. I've seen how little, you know, we were able to squeeze out of them. I think that we should just take this and use it as a foundation to fight for in the future. And it really tore apart friendships and relationships through that vote, but ultimately it did pass. And so, they have that and haven't been able to build upon that in the years since. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. If you could sum up how you say you grew as a person after that experience, how would you describe that? I just understood the world in a different way. Like I said, I understood that it's not really all about money sometimes. Power is just equally as important. I understood how much, like how, how to what length corporations, the ruling class, the rich people in this country will go to to stop you from having any kind of say-so um, about your own working conditions and about how they're actually pretty uh, staunch or like, uh, you know, firm in their position because if they let one go, they see it as a bowling, you know, kind of domino effect that if one, if one company has it, then the rest of the companies will be affected. Um, and I also learned about who shows up in those times. And so in those times of walking the picket line, being completely exhausted. We had community people from the community bringing us food, um, you know, honking their horn as they're passing by, letting us know that we support you. And so it let me know that, you know, this fight to keep jobs middle class, to protect middle class America and um, the working poor is like something that we all feel deeply and we're all in this fight together. Um, many of the folks who came out to the picket line to show solidarity, whether it was through food or through just like walking alongside us, um, even even some some organizations, um, you know, said we will adopt a picket line so that it would allow for me and my coworkers to maybe go home an hour early for and they will hold it down for us, right? Um, so so those some of those some of those folks were socialists, and that's how I learned about socialism. I also want to say something about race and race dynamics, though, too, because my union is a lot of white guys. And um, 
there was some racial tension there. Uh, they, you know, the leadership was always like super supportive of our u- efforts to unionize. We would have to use the union hall to meet before we ever won a union. 10 o'clock at night, they'd have to open it for us because everybody was working retail. So we're m- meeting at 10, 11 p.m. at night. That's where our union meetings are happening, right? And they were very gracious in that. But I would say that when we got on the picket line, originally everybody, you know, seven stores, everybody was just assigned, just go outside of your own store. When you go outside of your own store, there's also people from the landlord side that are holding down a picket line there. So what ended up happening was is that we we're all young, black and brown, you know, you know, individuals. And most of the people that were on the strike line were like old time. They had been doing this for years, sometimes some of them decades, very white, very old school Brooklyn, very, you know, very like that. And so we saw the ways in which they antagonize people who cross the line. No, we don't want anybody to cross the picket line. True. Yes, we don't like scabs, as we call them, people who cross the picket line, people who say, I don't care, I just need what I need and, you know, whatever, forget whatever the rest of you guys are talking about. We don't like that. But that doesn't mean that we call them the N-word. That doesn't mean that we display Islamophobia. And those are things that we saw from the union members there. And it caused people to be like, what am I doing here? This can't be my group. I don't see myself here, right? So much so that at one point I had to make an executive decision and tell the union, hey, give me a van. I got or give me a couple charter buses. I got to put all my people on charter buses and we can just go around because the whole city was on strike. It wasn't just Brooklyn. It was a whole city, New York City. So we got to go around and visit different picket lines and just stay together in our solidarity because we're going to lose people if they have to uh, like experience this on the picket line on their own. I also saw how the police respond to picket lines. The police generally um, in the past have always kind of like left picket lines alone. It's because most of the time those have been filled of white, straight men. And so there's like this, I, I've seen how they handle them. It's just different. Even when they have something to say, like don't yell or don't, you can't stand over there. It's just in a, like a, a bro kind of way, like in a, a mutual respect kind of way. Versus when it's us on the picket line, it's like, what are you doing here? You're obstruct, you know, I'm going to write you a ticket for being on the sidewalk, et cetera. And so understanding that this is like, they say labor is all together, but we don't experience these things the same way, right? We experience these things very different. And so all of that kind of stuff, like kind of woke me up to like kind of this like lullaby that had, they had sang me in the beginning of like this sister between the labor movement and the civil rights movement and they're entwi- intertwined and you know, there always have been and it's just like, no, 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 that's not true. There are still divisions even within organized labor, right? You mentioned that around this time is when you got introduced to socialists, is that right? Absolutely, yes, that's right. Tell me about that. Sure. So um, first and foremost, the first organizer that was sent to me from the union, from CWA, happened to be a young man. And when I, I met him at a subway, I, this is in the beginning, whenever I first was, this is my first contact with the union. Met him in the beginning. He seemed like a cool guy, young white guy, um, around my same age, maybe a little younger. And he started talking to me about his experience of Occupy Wall Street. And about how he was one of the organizers and about how this, you know, fight against the corporation is just like the 99% against the 1%, et cetera, et cetera. And I remember going back to my coworkers and saying, okay, and describing our meetings. And everybody was so moved and like impressed with the fact that he was from Occupy Wall Street, because that was a movement that had really resonated with a lot of young people, including us, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so we were like, okay, he seems like the real deal. Like, this doesn't seem like a game. This seems like this is going to be serious. 
fast forward to when we were on strike and I mentioned that there were some groups that were coming out to, you know, show love, help out, you know, run uh, fundraisers for us, have us come in and speaking, we start to realize, okay, these are socialists. These are, they're, they're saying that they're self-proclaimed socialists. At this time, the DSA or the Democratic Socialists of America as like what, you know, we'll, how we'll refer to it probably going forward is not in existence as an organization in New York City. As a matter of fact, what they say is like, they, you know, they invite us, so they invite us to reading groups and we learn about capitalism and how our struggle um, is tied into the struggle of all working people, you know, in, in the fight for socialism and um, t- taking the means of production, all of these things, right? And it's really resonating with me, mostly because I grew up in a Church of God in Christ household and was forced to read the Bible so much. And what I actually got out of the Bible were like what I would call like the fun- fundamental like socialist principles about taking mm. care of your neighbor, you know, looking out for the poor, just doing for one another in the way that we would want, you know, to be treated, et cetera, like those very basic uh, principles. And so it resonated with me. And many of my, me and my coworkers decided like, these were cool people. Like these are the people that are showing up for us because there wasn't anybody else showing up for us really, you know, besides a couple politicians. Um, they come to me and they say, hey, listen, there's this thing called Democratic Socialists of America that's kind of defunct here. Um, the chapter doesn't really exist anymore, but we think we want to take it over and build something new. And we think somebody like, you know, you all are like at the forefront of like worker organizing and building worker power in the city and kind of the face of this. We think that like, if we join forces, we could really do something really special. And so that's how I got introduced into the Democratic Socialists of America and got into the process of like building what we know now as the DSA New York City chapter. When it comes to union organizing, is this something that is for everybody that has a job or are there specific types of situations where that it's beneficial for? How should our audience be thinking about this? As far as who should have a union? Yeah. Everyone should have a union. Okay. The union okay. is for everyone. And I want to say that clearly too, because it's one of the things that the management said to us after, right after we won the union. Um, they said, you know, it's cool. You guys won your, you know, you won your union election, but you know, you're never really going to get a contract because unions aren't for retail. Like that doesn't go together. Unions are really for factories, you know, or for Hmm. different types of jobs, not, not or city jobs, not for retail. So it's not really going to work in your case, but unions are and can be for anyone. We just have to be creative about the, the way that we approach the solutions. Okay. So if someone's listening to this and uh, they're inspired to take some kind of uh, action if there's not currently a union in their workplace, um, how can they be thinking about taking steps towards organizing um, their coworkers? Yeah, that's a good question. So for me, the way that I uh, went about it is just thinking about who are the people who I think would want a union in our workplace. You're thinking about the people who complain a lot, the people who you've seen get the short end of the stick, you know, looked over for promotions, etc. Um, I identified one of those people in every one of the Brooklyn stores, seven stores. So whenever I met the union organizer for the first time, I actually had what is essentially an organizing committee, which is what you want to think about. It should be about 10% of the number of people that you see being a part of the union shop is what we call it. Um, You need about 10% of those people represented um, in an organizing committee. 
And you need to go a step further and make sure that like different positions are represented, diff- that it's diverse and it actually represents what the actual unit looks like. Um, but once you, you talk to people and you say, you know, what do you think about this? And you do it really discreetly too, by the way, because you're going to get fired if they find out that you're having these conversations with your coworkers before you actually go into a formal process. So you do it discreetly. You talk to people who you trust. And then you start to make a list and say, who are all the people in our workplace? And then you rate them. Uh, One is somebody who you think is going to be super supportive for the union. A two is somebody who you really just don't know, um, but you might have to have a conversation with them. And then a three is somebody who you know is not, is like manager. These are the people who managers love, managers pets, the people who are close to them. You leave them out because you know automatically that they're probably going to snitch on you. So you do that categorization and then you look at the numbers. Does it make sense for us to pursue this? Do we have enough ones and twos here to go ahead and keep having conversations and and do outreach? You also want to be mindful of the type of union that you're reaching out to. Um, You know, there's some unions like United Auto Workers who just don't do auto organizing, right? Once upon a time, they were just in the factory, but now, you know, they represent higher ed uh, employees and you know, all kinds of uh, positions, staff positions from a, a lots of different institutions. And so you figure out who are the fighting unions around me. And when I say fighting union, you've heard about them going on a strike. You've heard, you've seen them out in the streets, maybe, you know, doing information or passing out flyers. Somebody who you know is active and on their members' behalf. Um, and you reach out to them. And then you say, you, you all decide, you know, which union you want to go with. Um, but you do all this, and I can't stress it enough, discreetly. because. It is very dangerous. The company takes union um, organizing very seriously. And it's not just Verizon Wireless that did that. It's not just Verizon that just did that. But, you know, we actually learned from their side because of some leaked documents that they actually have like uh, metrics that they follow. So there's like signs to look for, for managers to look for um, to see if your, your, your workers are organizing or not. And if you trigger two of those things in Verizon, they send what they call a jump team on a plane to the store to in, in investigate and kind of interview people themselves. And the things could be really simple, like seeing coworkers huddled into a corner talking, right? Like that's on their things. <laughs> that's on their list of like suspect behavior. And so just knowing that they know what to look for. And so you have to be like, I can't stress it enough. Be discreet, be low with it. Bianca Cunningham, thank you for joining us on Black History Year. Thank you for having me. That was Bianca Cunningham of the Action Center for Race and the Economy, or ACRE. If you want to learn more about her work and you're looking to get involved, visit acrecampaigns.org. That's A-C-R-E campaigns.org. At Push Black, we agree with Marcus Garvey when he said, a people without knowledge of their past, history, origin, and culture is like a tree without roots. And I'm guessing you probably feel like that's important too. I mean, you're here at the end of a podcast about black history. You matter. Your choice to be here matters. It lets us know that you value this work. And you make Push Black happen with your contributions at blackhistoryyear.com. Most folks do five or 10 bucks a month, but really... Everything makes a difference. Thank you for supporting the work. Black History Year is a production of Push Black, 
the nation's largest nonprofit black media company. Our team includes Tarek Alani, Brooke Brown, Tasha Taylor, and Lily Workna. Producing this episode, we have Sydney Smith and Lynn Webb for Push Black, and Ronald Young Jr., who also edits the show. Black History Year's executive producers are Michael L. Sessa for Lemon House and Julian Walker for Push Black. Peace.